welcome to the Winning in Real Estate podcast with your host and CEO of Align Ventures, Arnold Olshaneski. Join us as we speak with real estate pros about their experiences and learn the fundamentals of passive real estate investing. Together, we will unlock the secrets of achieving financial freedom by discussing proven strategies and building passive income through investing in real estate. Here's your host, Arnold Olshaneski. Welcome to the Winning in Real Estate podcast. As always, I'm your host, Arnold Olshansky, and joining me today is Lee Yoder. Lee is the founder and CEO of Threefold Real Estate Investing, a real estate syndication company that has 283 units under management, whose goal is to grow their portfolio and help their investors in the process. Lee, welcome to the show. Yeah, Arnold, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, likewise. I'm excited you're here. One thing that caught on to me when we were doing a little bit of our research was before going into real estate, you were climbing the corporate ladder. Everything seemed to be going well. What made you take a step back and say, you know what? This isn't for me. Yeah, it's a good question because I really, at the time, Arnold, I was actually really enjoying my work. It was challenging, exciting, fulfilling, but it was a typical climbing the corporate ladder job where like, the better you do, like you really just get rewarded with more responsibility and more time. And this was pre-COVID. So it was all in the office all the time. And I really was passionate about my work and wanted to do well and do well for the company. And so at that time, but I just, I didn't want to keep spending more and more time away from my family. So I started getting up like really early, 4, 4.30 in the morning, just so I could work more, but not lose more time with the family. But it wasn't like I got to leave earlier from work and, and come home earlier or anything. It was like, oh, that's great, but like keep doing that. And then I was moving toward a promotion, moving to like a, a director of operations role. And that role was going to require more time at work and stay later and, and maybe come in a little more often on Saturdays and stuff like that. And so I just thought, man, I like working this hard, but I'd like to do it when it makes sense. And I'd like to maybe see a little more upside. So I just started looking around. I wasn't thinking at the time, like, all right, man, I'm out of here. Because again, I really liked the work. I liked the people I was working with. But I just started looking around and I went down the rabbit hole, the rich dad, poor dad rabbit hole and, and those kind of books. And was like, man, I think there's another way to do this. I think I can work really hard, but a little bit more on my time, my family's time, like our schedule and just have some flexibility and then maybe some more upside. So that's where my gears started turning. We're like, I love to work probably too much, but I just wanted to be able to control a little bit more. And then maybe just some more upside to it than I was seeing there in that corporate job. I could see how the motivation could be very different when you're working for somebody else and just waiting for that annual increase mm -hmm. as opposed to really controlling something that you can call your own and eventually put people in the right spots and walk away from the business a little bit or continue growing. So probably a completely different fuel that it adds to that motivation and that fire. That's what I feel today. I didn't know all that at the time, Arnold. I just felt like I think I want to do something that I can control more, where I can work really hard, but when it makes sense, like shift my schedule a little bit or get up early in the morning and allow that to make a difference. And then I could be off early or something just if we wanted to. Again, I like to work. So I wasn't really looking to work less, just more flexible at the time. That's how I was really looking for. And then the more I got into it, I just got really excited about going out and doing something. I started to realize that I had a lot of entrepreneurial in me and I got excited about going out and trying to do something. Do you remember what was that first step that you took to get into the real estate business? Was it a book? Was it a seminar? What was that first micro commitment that you made to your new career now? I would say probably reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I think when I read that book, it started my mind, started the gears turning. And I just had this thought, what that book said to me was, there's an entirely different game that I never 
knew about. I'd never heard of, like, I feel like almost everybody, like maybe 90% of people are playing the same game and it's the poor dad route and it's fine. I think calling it the poor dad route is such a negative connotation. It's okay, but like, it's just the game everybody's playing. You go to school, you try to get a good job, you try to do well in that job, you try to move up, you try to spend less than you make so that you can have some savings. You try to maybe invest that in the stock market. That's pretty much all anybody does, 90%. And then you just build up this nest egg so that when you're 65, you can retire. And so that's the game I was playing. That's the game my wife was playing, our parents, everybody. And I read Rich Dad Poor Dad and I'm like, there's some people out there. There's like this 10%, maybe it's 5%. And they're playing a completely different game. And I wanted to play that game instead. So that was my mindset shift. I didn't really know what that meant, but I just thought there, this is, there's something to this. And I want to go do this instead. I at least want to try. I want to try to go do this instead, play this other game. And I know you started your real estate career flipping properties. What made you switch from flipping houses to being more of a long-term value add investor where now you're going into deals for three, four, five years and, and up. Well, all, all the podcasts I was listening to, Arnold, talked about passive income and owning real estate and paying off the debt and having renters and all this. And so I was telling my wife on this dream of, hey, here's what we're going to do. It's going to change your life. It's going to be amazing. This feels like everybody starts with a flip. And that felt safe to us because it was like, we can buy this little house in our town and if everything fails, then we're just, we're paying off two mortgages, the one we live in and the one we don't. And we, at the time we could afford both mortgages. So it felt like, all right, that sounds like a good worst case scenario is that we're paying off two houses and we're only living in one. And so, yeah, that stinks, but okay, we're fine. We're not living on the street. We're fine. So we started there. I feel like through that, God gave us like this perfect picture of what flipping is. And it's fine, but flipping is not investing. It's just a different way to exchange your time for money. And we saw that perfectly because when I left my corporate job, climbing the corporate ladder, and I went back to doing home health physical therapy, which is what I was doing at the time, I took like a 30, probably $30,000 pay cut, something like that. So I had a lot more time with this job, a lot more time freedom with this job. But then I added a flip on top of that. So then I didn't have any more time. I was just as busy as I was before. And we made $30,000 on the flip. I made the same amount of money with two jobs that I was making with the one really busier job. So working the same amount of hours and made the same amount of money. And we sold that flip and we owned nothing. So it was like, wow, that's, there's nothing different. I was just doing a different job, right? I was just trading my time in a different way for the same amount of money, two jobs versus one, right? So, but the only thing I'll say that I don't want to put it down too much because it got me into real estate. So flipping is a great way to get started. We made some money. We were able to take that money and roll it into the next deal. I learned a lot, but flipping is not investing. It's a real estate job. It's a way to make money. It can be a great way, but yeah, we just saw that picture like, all right, this was just trading our time differently. Yeah, as you were saying, that was ringing through my head is even though you realized there was another way to trade time for money, it was still a stepping stone for where you are today. And some of the most successful people I know in real estate started with a single family that they might have rented or yeah. flipping houses. And as they got into the industry and new opportunities opened up and they realized the power of passive income of eventually building that cash flow stream where, you know what, if I want to take off for a month or two months, I'm going to be okay. And yeah. then they migrate. So it seems like such a common story and I could definitely relate to it. I want to ask you when you made the transition what were some of the big challenges that you remember you faced at that time, making that switch? 
Yeah, that's a great question because it is so different. There were so many days, I still have this today, but certainly early on where I felt like, what am I supposed to do today? <laughs> like, You don't have somebody telling you like, hey, here's what we're working on. We have this goal. We have this client we want to reach. We have this number of sales, whatever. Like, So here's this goal and I'm going to break it down for the team and here's what we need to do. So you're part of the team. So you're going to do this job and that's going to help us all move toward this goal. There's none of that. I mean, you're doing all that on your own. You're deciding what's the goal. I want to own rentals and okay, what's that mean? How do we get there? I don't know. So you listen to uh, podcasts and read books and go to meetups and talk to people. Okay, it sounds like this is what I should be doing. All right, I'll go do this. And hey, this guy, he's doing it. And this is what he's doing. So I'll try to do this. So like, that's a real challenge to just come up with like, what are the things I need to be focusing on to move the ball forward to eventually reach a goal of owning I want to own a duplex. That's my first goal. So what do I got to do to own a duplex? And then, all right, do I want to do that again? Or do I want to go bigger? Okay, I want to go bigger. What's that mean? Yeah, it's just figuring out what you want. What's the next goal? What is the right goal? And then how do we break that down? What are the steps to get there? It's it's tough doing all that on your own. Absolutely. Yeah, it's that whole thinking process, right? You know, just kind of, okay, this is what I want to do. Where do I start? And figuring that whole map out and trajectory and I think one of the ways I found it is to kind of do your own thinking. And like you said, listening to podcasts, going to meet up with people, getting a second opinion, a sound board, and eventually your plan comes together. But it's definitely a similar challenge that I've experienced in every business I've ever done. So a common theme as well. Now, to switch topics a little bit and and talk about real estate, what is your current outlook on the real estate market? As of today, what type of opportunities are you seeing out there? Just 30,000 feet up bird's eye view market conditions. Yeah, I think it's a tough time to get in. I think it's a tough time to buy because the way I see it is interest rates have moved up so far and so fast that the market really hasn't had time to react. And so we're at a real stalemate where rents in some areas in the country, rents have actually started coming down a little bit. But they went up so high, so for the past two years that they're still way high. And so the net operating income in the T12 for most properties look great. So sellers are still feeling really good about the price they should be able to command for their properties. But as a buyer, I've got to pay a much higher interest rate than what that seller is probably paying right now. So their cash flow is awesome. So I can understand why they think their property is worth, you know, 10, $20 million, whatever you're looking at. But I just can't pay that because I'm going to give the bank so much of the profit at 7% interest rates that I can't cash flow. And to me, Arnold, I've got to buy where I can cash flow because that's my security. I believe in appreciation. I think anything we buy, even if I buy today and it feels like I overpaid, I think in five years, it's going to be worth more. I think in 10 years, it's going to be worth a lot more, but I got to be able to get there. And to get to five years from now, 10 years from now, I've got a cash flow. My investors want cash flow. I want cash flow. And then the other thing that does for me on it is like, if I'm cash flowing, if I think I'm going to cash flow hundred grand a year and I'm off by 50 grand, okay, we're still cash flowing 50. If I'm off by hundred grand, we're not cash flowing, but we're still making all the payments. If I think there's going to be very little cash flow and I'm like, eh, we're not really going to cash flow, maybe 10 grand a year, but it's okay. We're gonna, it's going to be worth a lot more. And I'm 50 grand off. I can't even make my payments. So that's what cash flow is to me. And it's just really hard to do that today. So 
The other thing that plays into it too is, are we going to have a recession or not? Everybody's been flip-flopping on this. It's really hard to get a gauge on it. Uh, Manufacturing is in a recession right now and pretty severely. China's in a recession. I think Europe might be, and we don't know it yet. So I think we're headed for a recession. I I think things are going to get worse. I think it feels like we skip past it. I don't think it's going to be just like 2008. It never is. But in the summer of 2008, everybody thought they avoided a recession too, even though Lehman Brothers had already crashed or Bear Stearns had already crashed. Lehman Brothers was in the fall, but Bear Stearns had already crashed, but the Fed came in. They stopped raising interest rate. They were raising interest rates back then too and fighting inflation back then too. People forget that. So I see a lot of similarities. I think there are market swings. We haven't swung into a recession and swung into a down cycle for a long time. I think we were headed there when we when COVID hit and COVID allowed the Fed and, and governments and central banks all over the world to, to create an incredible amount of money. And so I think it pushed it out. And then we had this crazy inflation. So it messed everything up. But I still think a day of reckoning is coming. It's just part of the market cycle, the business cycle, the credit cycle. Credit has been tightening. It's harder to get money from the bank. It's harder to raise money. And that's part of the standstill too. There's not buyers can't go out and raise as much money. So there's not as many buyers out there. So that I said a lot. I think it's just a challenging time. And I think everybody's waiting to see what happens. And frankly, I think it's a pretty good time to be patient because Prices are still high and interest rates are really high. So I would like to see either prices come down to match the high interest rates or we head into a recession, you might get both. The Fed is going to lower interest rates, in my opinion. If we get into a bad spot, the Fed always lowers interest rates. Next year is an election year. Any president, this is not a political thing. If it's Democrat, Republican, they're going to do everything they can to make the economy look good heading into election, right? So if we get into a bad time, they're lowering interest rates. They're going to do everything they can to pull us out of it. So that could be a great time to buy. If we're in a recession and they lower interest rates, you're getting a good interest rate and probably prices are down. Now, rent's going to be down. Occupancy is going to be down. So it's not going to feel good. But I think it could be a good opportunity here in the next six to 12 months. So I'm trying to be patient. It's hard to be patient. Also, you don't want to get stuck in like just trying to time the market because there's. I thought we were going to have a recession in 2016 and 2017. And here we are in 2023 and we still haven't. So now again, I think COVID threw everything off. But uh, yeah, that, that's where I think we're at. It, it, it's a really tough time. And I still think we're headed for recession. So I think you got to be careful right now. Going back to what you said before, right? It's that whole piece. If you don't want to market time, right? That security is the cash flow, right? Because no matter what the yeah. conditions are, yep. if the property is cash yep. flowing today and it has enough cushion, you know, with the yep. rate that you're getting it at from the bank in today's conditions, then you're pretty safe as opposed to just betting on appreciation. But one of the things I'm hearing you say, is that there's still a big disconnect between buyers yeah. and sellers, right? And this is something I've been tracking. I'm really curious about your opinion, right? So, you know, when we were in the four cap environment just a year and a half, two years back, three and a half caps, but rates were at 3%, three and a half percent. You know, now rates are six and a half, seven percent, and so on. Right now, if the rates went up 300 basis points and the cap rates, right, hypothetically should go up also 300 basis points in order to kind of level out that playing field. Yep. However, when sellers had a property that's worth $20 million yesterday and a year later, somebody's telling them, Hey, now it's worth 16 million or 15 million. That reality is very hard to grasp, right? It's like, it's like, what? No. And they'll argue with the brokers and so on. So when we speak with brokers out there, they're saying, Hey, that's the first question I'm asking brokers what's the disconnect look like, 
right? And I haven't made some of those calls recently. I'm curious, what are you seeing in terms of that disconnect? What kind of cap rates are you seeing out there? Are you still seeing sellers fixed in their ways of no, no way my property's worth less than before? Or are you seeing people start to come to terms that, hey, it's not the same market as a year and a half, two years ago? It's exactly like you said, Arnold. Before, a year, two years ago, brokers were trying to get us excited. This is Southwest Ohio, so we're not, we didn't see the three cap stuff that some of the market. Now, I shouldn't say that. We it got crazy here too. But back then it was like brokers were trying to get you excited about a five cap. Hey, you know, a lot of stuff's in the fours, but this one's a five cap. And like you said, that feels really expensive. It felt really expensive even, even with interest rates at three and a half and four percent. But to your point, like that's positive leverage. I'm buying at a five cap and my interest rate's 4%. Today, brokers are trying to get us excited about a six cap. So that's a big difference. It's a, like you said, it, that's a big, a big discount. We're talking about millions of dollars off. My interest rate is six and a half or seven. So that's a negative leverage. So again, back to the cash with that kind of negative leverage, you're not cash flowing well. So I'm going, Hey, that's great. I'm excited about getting a couple million dollar discount, but like I need it to be four or five because I need to be at a seven cap. And again, they're just going to get like, no one's selling at a seven cap. This seller's not going to sell at a seven cap. And I get it. I don't expect them to. And then maybe that's why the, the seller just says, well, then I'm not buying, you know, I'm not selling. And and that's why transactions are down. I think what I, I think is that I heard 79% year over year transactions are down in the first half of 2023 commercial real estate. So that's why. And I get it. If a seller doesn't have to sell, then don't sell. But I'm, yeah, I'm not going to buy I'm not going to get excited about a six cap when rates are six and a half or seven. Now, if there's a ton of upside, then maybe that's different because if rents are $300 under the market rent today, and I'm feeling pretty good about that because even if, again, even if I'm right and we go into a recession and rents drop by a hundred, I still have a $200 Delta. So there, you can still make a deal and you make a great point. Or if you can cash flow, I don't care if values come down, right? I don't care if we go into recession and my properties were worth less. I'm cash flowing and like then rates come down. If I was cash flowing with interest rates at seven and rates come down and I can refinance at five, I'm going to be really excited about that. And then eventually my property is going to be worth a lot more because I bought it at this price with interest rates at seven. With interest rates at five, once we get out of the recession, it's going to be worth a lot more. So you make a good point there too. They still deals to be had if you can do that, but man, good luck finding cash flow right now. It's, it's really tough. You got to look at hundreds and hundreds of deals in order to get that one. And a little caveat for our listeners, right? It's not just about the cash flow. It's under what terms are you getting that positive cash flow? Are you getting it under mm -hmm. fixed bridge terms that are going to expire yeah, in two yeah. years? Or yeah. are you locking in a seven, 10 year or plus interest rate where you're not going to have to worry in two years about my rate becoming adjustable and now that cash flow disappearing. Yep. So it's yep. not just Good about point. cash flow. It's also about what kind of debt are you getting on the property? And yeah. it seems Good from point. what you're saying, and I know you look at a ton of deals in your markets, are you mainly still seeing six caps? Are you seeing any sevens pop up? Are you seeing any seven and a halfs? Or would you say brokers are getting really excited when they see a six nowadays? Yeah, I would say that the latter. I'd say I'm not seeing anything sevens. Now we look at, we try to stay close. We at least 50 units, but we like to be around 100 units. So that's what we're looking at. I look at a lot of C class stuff, maybe a little bit of B minus stuff, but we're mostly C, C plus, B minus game and as close to 100 units as we can be. So that's what we're looking at here. And yeah, I, the brokers are trying to get us excited about 
a six cap or even a 5.75. They're trying to get us excited about that. I'm not seeing any sevens on anything decent that I would like to buy. Yeah. Now, one of the big theories that was going around in the market is that the opportunities are about to flood in, right? That people are about to start getting distressed because a lot of people took bridge financing two, three years ago, got leveraged up to 80% and they can't refinance into fixed financing right now because their debt coverage ratio is too high and just other qualifications that they can't meet. And now their rates are going adjustable and now their property is not going to cash flow. So now they have to call their investors for capital calls or Find the money somehow, right? So there was this theory going on that there should be a lot of de-stress opportunities coming up because of all that bridge financing people took when the market was really hot. Are you seeing any of those de-stress opportunities in your markets? Are you seeing any sellers in a pinch where it's, hey, I got to sell this property? Or is that just not the case today? I'm not seeing in our market, but I'm hearing about it a lot. So from other investors, friends, colleagues of mine that invest in other markets. I talked to a guy today. He's pretty sure they're going to lose their property. It's big property down in Austin. And it's one of those, yeah, rates got away from me. He's like, property's performing well. I mean, vacancies up. So he said it was performing really well, but then he told me he had like 15% vacancy. I'm like, well, that's not that good. But it would no one be okay, but just their interest rates just run away from them. So they're going to lose it. But it's interesting with commercial, like when somebody loses a house, the house goes back to the bank. And then somebody can come in and buy that from the bank. And that's basically how it works. Banks, I mean, they don't want to take houses back either, but they definitely don't want to take an apartment building back because a hundred people live there and somebody's got to operate it and, and banks don't want to do that. So what I don't know, Arnold, is how it unfolds. So to answer your question, we're not seeing the distress here yet. This is a, you know, the Midwest is kind of your sleepy, slow and steady market. So I just don't know if that many people here got carried away. Now, Columbus was a really hot market. And so I think there's going to be some of that there. Not so much here in Cincinnati and Dayton where I invest, but I, I'm definitely hearing about it. I, I know of people that are going to lose their property or are losing their property. It's just a really slow moving train. And I think that's what gets people. This is a little bit off topic, but you know, Jerome Powell said interest rate, the inflation was transitory and people have crushed him over that. But if you really look at it, I was listening to some guys at the time, some macroeconomists, and they were saying they agreed with him that it was transitory. And they're saying today he was right because it was a, only a year and a half or so. But like most people think transitory, like we just live in such a fast paced world. And most people are like, if inflation lasts more than a couple of months, that's not transitory. He was wrong. And they're like, look, man, in the grand scheme of things, a year and a half is no time at all. Like, yeah, we hit 9%. We're all the way back down in the threes now. I think we were 3.1%. Like, okay, it's still higher than their goal of two, but Dude, we're down 6%. We're nowhere close. So anyway, I think the same thing with distress. And I fall into this too. Like I hear that there's going to be distress and I want to see it next month or three months from now at the latest, right? Like I'm ready for these deals to come up and I haven't seen them and we're not even hearing about it. But man, this is such a slow moving cruise line or ship. It, this is not a speedboat. It's going to take a lot of time. I do think there's going to be distress. What I would say, I don't know how that unfolds. I don't know how the bank unloads it. Who gets access to that? I don't think it's one of these things like all of a sudden you pull up LoopNet, you talk to your broker and he's like, hey, here's all these deals. Which one do you want? All you got to do is take over the debt or something. I, I don't know. So I think what's big is having the relationships with some mortgage brokers, some lenders, some brokers that find out about that 
and give you a chance at it, but I am not seeing it here yet, but I'm just, I'm hearing about it in the hottest markets. I think that's where you see it first. I'm hearing about it in Austin, Phoenix, Tampa, people losing deals. And I think it's going to come everywhere. Not as much. I think the hottest markets are going to crash the first and farthest, like always. But I think we're going to see some everywhere. It's just, it's going to take time. And I don't know what it's going to look like, how you're going to get access to those deals. You bring up a good point, right? It's all theories because there's so many unknown factors. Like one thing you mentioned, how are the banks going to react, right? When push comes to shove and somebody can't make their debt payment or is falling behind, are they really going to go take the property or are they going to work with them? Are they going to try to lower the rate, right? What's going to happen there, right? Because if the banks start working with the sellers then all that distress opportunity starts getting minimized. Another thing is how much competition are you going to have? Because we're not the only ones sitting here thinking, hey, there's going to be a gold rush, right? There's going to be other investors that have a lot of dry powder sitting on the sidelines and they're waiting for that opportunity as well. So when that comes, now you're going to have competition and people are going to be buying maybe at seven caps, right? But I don't see it going to some nine, 10 cap scenario, right? Because there's still so much basic strong fundamentals in the market and so many smart investors out there that know that and are waiting for the opportunity to come. But another thing that you said that I really liked, and I think all of our listeners can benefit is pay attention to the early indicators, right? And that key early indicator that you mentioned is where inflation is at, because the Fed is making its interest rate decisions based on how they see inflation going up, staying the same, going down, right? So now that number has significantly went down. Elections are coming up. You have to start asking yourselves, well, if their main driving factor is where inflation is at and that's coming down, what does my gut tell me about where interest rates are going? And so that's a big indicator that we look at for future planning. And anybody listening to the show should also take into consideration. I noticed one thing on your LinkedIn post, right? We do our research here. And you had a post that said the Sun Belt is losing its shine. Midwest is gaining ground among real estate investor. What trends are you seeing in the Midwest market? And why do you feel this is becoming the new hotspot for investment opportunities? Yeah, I think it's just a supply and demand thing for me, Arnold. And I look, you're exactly, you made the point, hey, it, you're probably not going to get the incredible deals that you think you're going to get if there's so many people waiting on incredible deals. And that's exactly right. Because if there's demand out there, then the price isn't going to be as good as you want, right? Because there's not enough supply. If there's not a ton of great deals, but there's a lot of buyers, then we're going to keep the price low because we're all going to bid on it. And we're going to bid up the price and stuff like that. And, or we're going to keep the number of great deals low, right? So I think it's the same way when I think about the Sun Belt in the Midwest. I still think long-term demographics and trends and stuff favor the Southeast and the Southwest and the smile states, but they're building a ton of multifamily units, like a ton. You look at some of the markets, don't just look at the number of units because you look at the number of units going up in Houston or something. You're like, oh my gosh, that's crazy. In Cincinnati, we only have this. Well, their population is like five times our population too. So you look at the people that put out stats, like the number of units that are coming online, what percentage of the total units is that? And there's some markets that are adding like 30% to their supply. That's crazy. So it's a supply and demand thing as far as new supply coming on the market. I just think there's nothing new under the sun. People love to tell themselves this story that like it's different this time. Phoenix is one that, I mean, crashed so hard in 08 and it went up so high 
and people were so excited about Phoenix. And it was like, it's not going to crash this time. And it's the one of the first markets to be seeing like pretty big negative rent growth, occupancy dropping. And there's a ton of units under construction. And we don't have that in the Midwest. So we have more units than normal. But I just think people don't get as excited about the Midwest. There's not as much competition here. So there's not as much demand. So it doesn't get as carried away. So when times are really good, you want to be in the boom bust markets. You want to ride that boom. But when it gets toward the end of the market cycle and you think it might start swinging back the other way, which eventually it always does. If you think we're not going to have another business cycle or another market cycle, maybe trees grow to the sky, but eventually we swing the other way. And I just think when we do, you want to be in the slow and steady tortoise wins the race type markets, because look, if we get into recession, are the rents at my apartment buildings here in the Southwest Ohio going to go down? Yes. Is occupancy going to go down? Yes. But is it going to go down and correct like those boom bust markets? No, I don't think so. I think the higher you rise, the farther you fall, right? And so that's why I, I see, they just call it like the, the safety trade, transitioning into bonds when we go into recession instead of equities, right? Getting out of the stock market. I just kind of see it the same way in the Midwest. I don't think we were nearly as overbought and overextended as some of those other hot markets. And so I think it's the place to be if the market's going to swing. That's a great analogy, actually. I'm going to take that one from you. Thank you. <laughs> just, Not just mine. Like... <laughs> I heard it from somebody else, I'm sure. <laughs> it's okay. We'll just borrow it. That's such a good point, right, that, that you're making is that consumption rate. And a lot of people I see sometimes have a misconception on that, right? It's not just about how many units are being built, but what is the forecast of how many of those units are going to be consumed yeah. based on key stats, right? Like migration, net migration, jobs coming into the market and so on. For anybody that wants to know any of these stats for their particular area, feel free to send us an email at info at investav.com. We have various technologies. So any listeners that are curious about these stats and want to take a look at their market, feel free to reach out. We more than happy to provide that. Now, besides that, are there any other trends that you're looking for? When you're looking at a potential market, obviously supply and demand is just a, such an age-old rule, right? Are there any other key factors that you're honing in on? I'll tell you one thing that's getting more recognition now, Arnold, because it's becoming a big issue and it just hasn't for a long time, is the expense side. And is certain expenses really rising. So for so long, the story has just been the income side. Like, look, man, look at our income runaway. We're raising rent, we're raising rent. And expenses might be going up a little bit, but who cares? Like, look how much rent. And that was all true. 2020, 2021, 2022, like rent just was skyrocketing. So who cares what your expenses are? We're increasing NOI because expenses cannot keep up with the inflation we're seeing in rent. Rent has cooled off. Like I said, there's some markets that it's negative, but most markets, it's just pretty steady. We've plateaued here in Southwest Ohio. Expenses are now going up. So we've seen our electricity providers tell us, hey, our rates are going up. Insurance is going up. Now, I'm glad right now I don't invest in Florida. I'm glad I'm not seeing those interest insurance increases. Texas, same way. But we just got our reassessment. So we reassess every three years here in Ohio. And every six years is like a full reassessment. So we just had that. Fortunately, on some of our properties, we're, we're seeing like a 12% increase. But that's you know still, still pretty big increase year over year, right? In one year. But I'm seeing some properties that are doubling their taxes. So that's a big increase. And then your labor is increasing. You know, everybody knows about that. So 
that's a trend. And it's not, you know, that's not a market specific thing. Well, it is when you look at the insurance, there's some markets that are crazy uh, and there's markets that handle taxes differently. So that's something you got to look at is the expenses right now. And your underwriting of just underwriting a 2% increase on expenses every year, you might want to dig into that a little bit more. Absolutely. Those two items that you mentioned for anybody that invests in real estate and wants to properly underwrite a deal, even if you don't know anything else, you need to know about taxes and insurance because those two things can just either make a deal or break a deal. And considering one of the things you said, I operate a lot in Texas and we've seen it, right? We've seen it, insurance rates doubling. We've seen taxes doubling. What saved us is the conservative underwriting we did when we were buying the properties, right? Because, you know, we're buying, yeah, we're buying the properties for 10, $20 million, right? But their tax assessed value is at 2 million, right? For me to underwrite it as if it's going to stay at 2 million, that's a big risk. So for people that are investing out there into real estate, do you have any advice on how they could protect themselves, you know, against some of these huge spikes that you're seeing in taxes and insurance that could literally wipe out all of the profits in a real estate transaction? That's the right question, Arnold. I'd say two things. One, I mean, you know, get a mentor, get a coach, partner with somebody that, that understands this stuff better than you do that can protect you. And then two, you know, if you don't do that too, it's what you just said, Arnold, it's really conservative underwriting. You've got to underwrite to where if worst case scenario happens, like you said, we have some of those problems. It's kind of same in Ohio. So I was like thrilled when we got a, hey, only a 25% increase on taxes. Great, because our property is worth four times what they have it valued at. So the fact that we didn't double or triple, I'm pumped, right? But it could. So, right, that could happen. So you've got to underwrite to where like, if it doubles or triples, you're still going to be okay. I mean, hopefully you can underwrite to where like, actually we'll still cash flow. And then if it doesn't do that, we're cash flowing really well. Now that's tough to do. If you underwrite that conservatively, maybe you don't ever buy anything. So you got to find that line, but man, I would say underwrite at least conservatively enough where, hey, if everything goes against us, taxes skyrocket, insurance skyrockets. If you got a floating interest rate, you better underwrite. Okay, if interest rates skyrocket, all, all that stuff, then we're still okay. Like at least we're still paying all our bills. That's conservative underwriting. Go for that deal. So that's what's going to save, you know, just like it has you, Arnold. Like, Absolutely. Because of that conservative underwriting. Hey, and I, I'll tell our investors that. I'll say, look, if we go into a bad recession, if things get really bad, we probably won't hit our projections, but we're not losing the property. We're going to be okay. And that's what people want to hear. And that's how it should be. Like if things get really bad, sure. Like we might not pay an 8% preferred return. Not this year. Now ours is cumulative. So we'll make it up to you. But look, hey, if things get really bad, sure. We might suspend distributions, but we're not going to lose the property. That's how you need to underwrite. And I remember this clear as day. We're sitting at an IMN conference just two years ago in Dallas, Texas. People are doing a deal a month, <laughs> you know, three caps, three and a half yep. caps, right? Yep. We're underwriting probably 40 to 50 deals a month, maybe submitting one letter of intent out of 40 and 50. And I felt that pressure, like maybe we should ease up on our underwriting. Maybe we should just yeah. ease up on it, right? Because yep. at that time, right, Texas was, you know, 20% that the taxes were 20% of what you were buying the property for, mm -hmm. right? And I remember I had to make a decision. Am I going to keep underwriting at 100% of what I'm buying the property for? 
or am I going to drop it to 50%? And it's hard, right, not to drop it when everybody else is dropping it and they're winning deals over you. And like you said, you had such a great point. It's about knowing that balance. It's about being competitive in the market where you're not just losing deals to everybody else, but at the same time, you have a sensitivity analysis where, you know what, if everything goes bad, can I still pay the bills? Yep, exactly. I think that's right, man. Yep, it's that balance. That's that's a great point. And uh, when you guys are doing deals, are you guys raising outside capital for your properties? Yeah, we syndicate all of them. So yeah, we we raise from our investors. Yep. And what have you seen in terms of sentiment and expectations? Have you seen any changes around that? Are investors still expecting the same type of returns as they were? Or just what kind of things are you seeing out there from the investor side? I saw, especially in the beginning of the year, now the stock markets rallied. I feel like people just go off the stock market. So if the stock market's up and returns are good, then they expect high returns and they're feeling pretty good. So I would say people are actually feeling a little bit better now than they were at the beginning of the year when what Silicon Valley Bank and Republic Bank, you know, failed, had to be rescued. Like people are going, uh, I don't know about. Th-. And since then, like we've been on this tear and people are feeling a little bit better. But I would say the more sophisticated the investor is, the more they're feeling like, I don't know that this is a good time. They're following more things. They, they understand the interest rates versus cap rates. They're thinking about that. And they're like, this doesn't make sense to me. So I'm seeing some of our more sophisticated investors be really conservative and say, man, if you're bringing me a deal and I can see that you bought it at a five cap and you're telling me you're getting an interest rate of six and a half, I'm not investing with you. You know, so I'm seeing some of that. And so, yeah, I would say it's definitely harder to raise money than it was a year, year and a half, two years ago. I think if we get into a recession, it's going to get even harder. So I don't think it's as hard as it's going to be. I think if like, there's not that much fear out there right now. I mean, it, unemployment's at what, 3.6%, you know, near all-time lows or at an all-time low. So it's still pretty easy, but it's definitely harder than it was. And, and we've got some investors that are feeling like, I think I'll just wait a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. To, to recap, we covered so much ground just for our listeners here. You want to look at consumption rates in a market. You want to look at not only how much is being built, but what's forecasted to be consumed right? You want to look at some of those early indicators. You don't want to just look at interest rates, but you want to look at inflation, where that's going, because that is going to give you an indication where interest rates are going to go. You want to keep things in mind, like you said, Lee, right? The election is coming up and there's no candidate that wants to, you know, fail the economy. That's just not good for the polls. And also, you know, what are the markets that are going to present opportunities? And is there really going to be huge distress out there considering there's a lot of people that believe in real estate and the fundamentals of this business so that if the stress does come, are you really just sitting on the sidelines for too long for no reason? So these are all good questions people should ask themselves. Lee, I highly appreciate you coming on to the show and sharing some of your experiences, your knowledge, and you know, and also talking about your journey, man, right? Because we all have one. We all start somewhere and we go through that path. So I was really glad we were able to connect and get to know each other a little bit. I'd like to jump into some of our closing questions, if that's okay with you. I'm ready. Let's do it. Great. So what is the most valuable lesson you've learned in your investing career? I'll say just to have like a long-term outlook, a long-term plan, long-term strategy, just move out your time. the, The quote of, and there's good scripture on this too in the Bible, but the quote about people overestimate what they can do in a year but vastly underestimate what they can do in five or especially 10. I think that's so true. So 
Man, keep taking steps, but just, you're going to be blown away. If you just stick with it, you're going to be blown away what you do in five years and really blown away what you do with it if you stay with it. But you might be really disappointed what you do after a year. Like you could, I mean, I'm sure you know, so I'm like, you could go all in on multifamily and not buy anything for a year. And you're going to feel like you've done nothing because your unit count went from zero to zero. Yeah, you've done, yeah. Man, <laughs> you have built up so much momentum. If you've really gotten after it for that year, you've built up so much momentum. And in year two, when you buy 200 units, it's not because of what you did in year two, not only. It's because of everything you did in year one. So I just listened to enough people that said that. And like, man, you go back and listen to these stories. I mean, that's some of my stories. Like our first year, we did, we flipped one house. Our second year, we did two units, a duplex. Our third year, we got a 16 unit, an eight unit, and a 10 unit. We got 34 units. So we went one, two, 34. Then we spent a whole year selling those. And then the next year we bought 188. So after one year, one unit, after two whole years, we'd done three units and then it just starts going up. But I couldn't have done any of that if I hadn't started in year one. So that's the best advice. That's great. Well, Lee, again, thanks for coming on the show. It was a pleasure chatting and just talking real estate a little bit, giving me some insight on where the market's at and how can our listeners reach you? Yeah, sure. Jump on our website, probably the easiest way. That's uh, spelled out T-H-R-E-E-F-O-L-D. That's threefold and then R-E-I as in realestateinvesting.com. So jump on the website. We've got a free ebook there. You know, you can contact us. My podcast is there, stuff like that. And then I'm pretty active on LinkedIn and Facebook as well. So if you just look up Lee Yoder on LinkedIn or Facebook, you'll find me as well. Great. Thank you. We'll have all of that in the show notes. Lisa, once again, thank you for coming on and sharing your knowledge. I hope we could connect a little bit offline as well and and stay in touch. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Honor. It was a pleasure. Winning in Real Estate listener, thank you for joining. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star review, share this podcast with somebody you think can benefit from it, and also don't forget to follow and subscribe. If you would like to become a better real estate investor, make sure to download the Passive Investor's Guide to Analyzing a Real Estate Syndication Deal. This comprehensive ebook equips investors with the tools to evaluate deals and avoid common mistakes, gain insights, strategies, and practical advice to make better investment decisions. Download your copy today at investav.com forward slash ebook, or you can find the link in our show notes. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action.